Welcome to UCI Law Talks from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join us on Twitter at UCI Law. Good evening, everyone. I'm Song Richardson, and I'm the Dean at UCI Law. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to this virtual book talk featuring our very own Professor Mersa Baradarin and her newest book, The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. And our discussion today will be moderated by John Gibson, and I'll tell you more about both of them in a moment. But first, I want to thank all of the people at UCI Law who made this event possible, and all of you for showing up this evening. And the people at UCI Law who brought together this remarkable event are Jillian Henry, Rebecca Bergeron, Anna Eiliff, Colleen Terracani, Marianne Soden, Dennis Sloan, Joe Macavinta, Jose Diaz, and Patty Furukawa. I just want to thank them all for bringing together this event. Uh, we were going to do this event live on the exact day that UCI Law went to um, completely online uh, teaching and events. So I'm so happy we're able to bring this event to you uh, tonight. So I know that all of you are as anxious as I am to get to this discussion. Uh, so I'll keep my introductions of Mersa and John short. Their full bios have been sent to you so you can peruse them later. Uh, if I were to give them both the full introduction, we'd be here for uh, the rest of the hour. So John Gibson, who's our moderator tonight, is a partner at Kroll & Mooring. He's also a member of UCI Law's Board of Visitors, and he's been a longtime supporter of the law school, including spending countless hours mentoring our students. There is simply no request that we have ever made of John uh, where he has said no. Um, and I want to thank John so much for the support that he's given to me, to our faculty, to our students, and to the law school. John is one of the leading commercial technology and antitrust litigators in the nation. He's also a highly decorated veteran of litigation battles and rescue missions. Uh, he's won celebrated trials and cases around the country for high-tech, international, and Fortune 500 companies, as well as for healthcare companies, professional sports teams, and pro bono clients. John serves on the firm's management board and is co-chair of its diversity council and as chair of the Antitrust and Technology Working Group. He continues to be listed as one of the best lawyers in America. And in addition to being a successful courtroom advocate, John won the Burton Award for being one of the finest law firm writers of 2019. And last year, the Thurgood Marshall Bar Association honored him as its Attorney of the Year. So thank you, John, so much for serving as our moderator tonight. Thank you, Sarah. Now, we are so fortunate to have recruited Professor Mersa Baradaran to UCI Law last year. Uh, we stole her from the University of Georgia School of Law, and I'm so happy that I was able to pull that off. We are so lucky to have her as part of our community. Um, and at Georgia, while she was there, she was the Robert Cotton Alston Chair in Corporate Law and also served as Associate Dean for Strategic Initiatives. Professor Baradaran writes about banking law, financial inclusion, inequality, and the racial wealth gap. 
She's a prolific scholar, including being the author of another book titled How the Other Half Banks, which is also published by Harvard University Press. The book that is the subject of this evening's talk has been highly praised and was awarded, among many other awards, was awarded the best book of the year by the Urban Affairs Association. Now, you'll probably recognize Professor Baradarin uh, because her books have received significant national and international media coverage and have been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, American Banker, The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Times, and on NPR's Marketplace, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, and PBS's NewsHour. You can see why I'm so thrilled to have convinced her to join our community here at UCI Law. But not only that, she's advised US senators and congressmen on policy. She's testified before the US Congress and spoken at national and international forums like the US Treasury and the World Bank. So this evening, we are in for a treat. We are fortunate to have two great minds and two brilliant lawyers. I will now turn the screen over to John Gibson and Professor Mersa Baradarin to discuss her extraordinary book, The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. Once again, thank you for joining us. Wow, thank you, Song. Um, I'm just uh, very pleased and honored to be on the same screen with the two of you legends. And uh, by the way, Song, I'd like you to please rewrite my Wikipedia page. <laughs> um, yeah. But in any event, I wanted to just take a minute or two before we start in on the questioning with you, Mersa, um, to really explain why this book was so personally impactful on me. And I've been thinking about it, and really there are two reasons uh, why the book was so impressive and hit me personally. Um, so hard and effectively. And the first is that it offers this very unique historical perspective and scholarship. And you know, it starts by calling out the gap between our ideals as a nation on the one hand and our achievements as a nation on the other. And that gap was present at the founding of our country. You know, the founding documents were written by folks who wanted to escape tyranny and oppression, the tyranny and oppression of the crown. And Abraham Lincoln later called those documents a rebuke to tyranny and oppression. Yet, those founding documents allowed slavery to continue. Those founding documents counted enslaved peoples as three-fifths of a person. And as the book points out, that gap exists still today. An example is that the wealth of a median white family in America is 13 times greater than the wealth of a median black family in America. Second reason why this was so impactful to me uh, was the identity and extraordinary life of the author. And uh, if you read beyond the book and did as I did and, and did some Googling and, and uh, some exploration about Mersa after reading this amazing book, you found that she's experienced in her life a dramatic reversal. In her first eight years or so 
on this planet. She was a child in a country where she and her classmates joined in a daily chant, shouting, shouting death to America. Today, she's not only an American citizen, but she's one of the people who is just critically important to breathing life into the dead and dying aspects of our America. So while she learned death to America as a child, she's living life to America through her personal commitment and through her brilliant scholarship. Uh, I would say that uh, if we were all in the same room together right now, Marissa, you'd be hearing thunderous applause for what you've achieved so far uh, and what you're yet to achieve. Let me just say to the audience, um, we've got, as I understand it, 243 of you out there. Uh, we have received a wide variety of pre-submitted questions, and we're, Marissa and I are going to try to get through the, just as many as we can in the time that we're allotted here. Um, we're going to cover a number of topics. First, we're going to cover some topics that were in the book, but because we have this brilliant author with us for a period of time, uh, we're also gonna cover some other uh, topics that are not in the book, although they're related. And so generally, we're gonna try to get to six topics. First, what is the wealth gap? Um, and what is the author's personal experience with it that drove her to write this book? Um, second topic is why the wealth gap is important. A critical question. Third question, third topic, why past measures to narrow the gap have failed? And then fourth, what measures might work going forward? Fifth and sixth, we want to talk about the situation we're in now, the COVID-19 crisis. And so the fifth question is uh, really, why is COVID-19 killing Black people at a higher rate than other populations in America. And then finally, we wanna talk about whether or not we can use the COVID-19 crisis uh, to help us develop solutions to the wealth gap. And that last topic is actually along the lines of a question that was submitted uh, to us by one of the members of the audience. So Marissa, turning to you, because you are the star and the subject of the hour, I wanna start by, by just asking you if you would take a few minutes to introduce us to your thesis and uh, to some of your general thoughts about the book, The Color of Mind. Um, yeah, sure. Um, thank you so much. Uh, the introductions are too kind. I, I, I would rather just skip it and we can <laughs> talk, maybe have a cocktail hour over Zoom later. Um, but um, uh, the thesis uh, that I um, talk about in the book, and I'm gonna try to share um, my uh, screen and, and some of this data, um, that is actually worse now than than it was. Um, so um, I'm gonna uh, just, here, you can see the screen. Um, this is a racial uh, wealth gap. Um, as John said, it's 13 to 20 times, white families have uh, 13 to 20 times the wealth of black families, and it doesn't shift over time. So, uh, you know, over time or um, with education. So uh, college educated, higher earning um, black families, so higher income, Black families have, you know, uh, one tenth to one twentieth the wealth of white families. In fact, the wealth gap is highest. Ironically, the higher income up you go. So wealth is really um, this very stagnant situation. I'll explain why why that is. But the other um, slide that I um, 
I want to talk about is just the, the stagnancy of the racial wealth gap. So this first um, pie chart is uh, at the cusp of the Civil War, 1865, black community, the black community total wealth was about 0.5%. I mean, there were not that many freedmen and women who were able to earn um, wages and, uh, and, and buy, buy land. Um, but today, that, that number has barely budged. It's about 1%. And so the thesis of the book is, insofar as you've had this economy where the levers of power have been um, political and based on sort of a control of uh, the, the, the systems of credit and, and banking and finance. Um, you were, there, every institution, specifically the banking sector and the credit mechanisms were blocking black capital accumulation. And, and, and at every, certain pivot points in our country where we could have um, achieved economic justice. So during Reconstruction or during the Civil Rights era, um, we chose another path. And that's been sort of this myth of um, self-help um, capitalism, this idea that if you, pull, you can pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, you can work hard, you can save your money. And, and that, that's sort of where I get at in the book. Um, uh, it's, it's not something that I have... Um, a personal experience with, right? I am not a American descent. I'm not an American. I'm not a descendant of, of American slaves, certainly. But um, something that that is um, a, a very keen interest of mine is how um, the myths and the stories that we tell end up perpetuating injustices. Um, one and two that the ways that um, powerful forces that are um, unseen end up. Um, becoming uh, drivers of inequality. And so the thing that I focus on in this book is the banking sector. And I wanna just quickly run through, I'm not gonna go through all of the, the pivot points. Um, I'll talk about them um, briefly. This is um, you know, the bank black movement. Recently, a lot of national attention on, on black banks, that's Killer Mike. Um, and uh, I, I'm gonna run through the, the Civil War aspects. Um, but I wanna talk about one of the major drivers of um, black and white wealth gap is um, uh, housing segregation. And even before um, the, the event that I'm going to talk about, which is the New Deal, um, sort of created a permanent uh, dual economy of, of mortgages, there was a lot of animosity. And I'm talking about the North here. I'm, I, we usually talk about the Southern racism, and, and not that that, that, that is fully understood, but, but I want to talk specifically about the Northern um, segregation and mortgage market. So um, in the North, um, the, the values of neighborhoods um, in the 1920s, and, and here's the thing, to this day, um, the racial makeup of a neighborhood determines its home values, okay? So when you see signs like this, um, this is both racist, uh, extremely you know, racist, violent, and also about home values, okay? So the, the, the thing that would happen um, during this, this time of flux, during the Great Migration, is when Black families would move into a neighborhood, um, as soon as that, that percentage of Black families tipped from, you know, uh, zero to two percent, the whites would start to flee, right? Um, so someone would call, called integration the few weeks between, or the few months between when the first Black family moved in and the last white family moved out. That was the moment where it was integrated. Um, this was a dramatic um, uh, driver of wealth. It was also um, done with a lot of violence. So a lot of times the first few Black families that moved in had their house bombed, had mobs showing up, um, had lots of race riots started um, uh, during this time um, against the Black um, property owners. But what this meant was 
when the black families would buy the home, um, that equity would immediately disappear. So they were they were paying a premium for the home to live there, right? Because they knew it was it was about to shift, and then their um, investment would disappear. So this this um, still exists. Uh, in large part, and is a large part responsible for the legacy of these historic racial wealth gaps. So your um, grandfather or your great grandfather having property, land, a home, even if you know you maybe not didn't didn't get the big inheritance, that still determines um, your wealth outcome much more so than anything you do in your life. And that's not sort of the, the the typical American story, but but it is um, very much borne by the data. So after um, after this this organic sort of segregation, um, it was also embedded in legal codes. Uh, there was a lot of contracts. I've uh, I had a student when I lived in Athens, Georgia, dig up my home deed. And every home deed, if you have a home that was you purchased before 1960s or so, it will say in there, um, uh, this home can only be sold to a white, uh, it's a Caucasian uh, uh, home owner, right? So these were in, embedded in contracts. But then it was sort of. Um, magnified through law. And this is where the New Deal comes in. So I'm just going to spend a moment talking about this because this really um, uh, determines the wealth creation potential for this century um, and to today. So what the New Deal does is before there were credit ratings, before there was underwriting and all of this stuff, we had these um, really blunt risk ratings, right? And, and what it was was um, maps, right? So depending on your neighborhood, they could determine the risk of your value of your home increasing. So before the New Deal, you could not get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. You could get a mortgage maybe for five years, you'd have to put half uh, down on a home, right? So mortgages were widely inaccessible. And if they were, there was a lot that you had to do to get one. Post New Deal, 30-year uh, fixed rate, self-amortizing, um, you know, 6% rate caps, those were all mandated by law um, through the FHA. They were sold through um, government-sponsored entities, uh, Fannie Mae, uh, Ginnie Mae, all of that, that government structure. The FDIC protected deposits, uh, the FHA insured loans, and so there was no risk in home lending. Um, this was all a government program um, created by first the HOLC and then the FHA. So these are the maps that they made. And I wanna focus on one, this is an actual um, description of one neighborhood in Atlanta. Um, and I show this neighborhood because that neighborhood in Atlanta, on you can see it on the, I don't know where it is on your screen, um, but on the other side where it shows the map, that neighborhood, that little slice of red is um, where Morehouse and Spelman College are. They're historically black colleges, the highest income, highest earning black neighborhood, probably in the country. I mean, there's maybe other rivals, but it was a very good neighborhood. Um, and you can see in this FHA map um, on the other side where it says, look, there was um, uh, inhabitants, Negro business and professional men, clerical workers, family incomes were good. Um, desirability, it says for black peoples is pretty good, right? But then if you look at this number two and then number two, um, A, C, and E, um, foreign-born families, how many foreign-born people were there? Zero percent. Um, and then uh, uh, Negro, yes, 100 percent. And then infiltration of, what is infiltration of? Um, how close were um, these other groups, these uh, foreign-born or Black um, residents. And that that neighborhood, even though the homes were owned, even though they were largely businessmen and women, mostly men, and um, it was the, the home of these two established um, uh, 
universities was redlined. And what redlining meant was that they could not get these government guaranteed mortgages. So if they wanted a mortgage, they had to go find it on the private market. And the private market was not present for these mortgages. <clears throat> There were about four black banks in the country, and they were struggling during this time. Meanwhile, in the white suburbs, I'm going to go back to these other areas. Um, this is Chicago. Um, if you see in the green area, so so it was so um, green and blue were um, they called them um, racially homogenous, right? So white. Uh, yellow was sort of mixed race, so there was some other races, and it really was race was the number one. Um, indicator that they looked at, right? Um, and you can see this across any other uh, uh, neighborhood that you look at. So what happens in the white um, suburbs is um, people are growing equity in their home. Their home prices are raising, uh, raising uh, rising in value. Um, they also have schools are funded through local property taxes, right? So those schools are getting the funds that they need. Their social capital being built. Social capital is who you know. It's the clubs. It's the this is the make America great again, right? This is the, the Levittowns, the, the American dream of suburbs and kids playing in the streets and consumer goods. Also, there was um, another market that was about um, consumer credit. So in the white suburbs, because of the wealth and because of the way that the credit cards were issued, you could get revolving credit. So you could buy a car, your refrigerator, your all these household goods. This is the post-war baby boom, greatest generation. Um, and they were buying on credit, everything, right? Their home was on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage and their goods were on revolving credit at 10, 6 to 10% in the black ghettos. Um, and I call it ghetto because it wasn't, you know, calling it a black community indicates that it was sort of a self-selected uh, reason why um, these were in the you know, communities were in these red line communities, but it was really a forced um, segregation. In the communities, there wasn't just no mortgage loans. They were paying higher rents than, than you would be paying your mortgages, not building equity. And they were paying 10 times as much for consumer goods. Anything you bought in the ghetto was not through a credit card or a revolving loan. It was through an installment loan. And an installment loan is sort of night and day from a revolving loan. So why is this important now? I'm, I, I'm not gonna do the whole book talk, it's all in the book, and I lay out exactly how we got from there to here. And we can talk about the civil rights era and how that failed to address this. Why that's relevant is that these wealth um, effects that last, I mean, the FHA and these programs are around until the late 60s. And even when it's outlawed, nobody fixes this, right? There is a clause in the FHA that that we should affirmatively further the cause of fair housing, but we've never actually addressed um, these disparities. We've never addressed the hundreds of years of explicitly racist and racial um, uh, exclusionary um, zoning laws. And what we have now is a massive racial wealth gap that grows over time, in fact. It, it's not closing at all with the subprime crisis. Um, as soon as Wall Street figured out that there was money to be made by selling loans into these black spaces, they came bearing subprime loans. And when the subprime crisis went bust, black families lost 53% of their accumulated wealth, which wasn't much to begin with. And that is not wealth that has been recovered over time. So when we talk about the financial recovery, it's been absolutely split. Um, and so now you have COVID-19, so I'm just gonna bring it to the present. When you have these structural disparities, and then you see a virus run through. Now, a virus is obviously colorblind, right? A virus is not racist. <laughs> I mean, it, it just gets humans at, at, at the same time. But what you have had is historic disparities in healthcare. Um, you have historic disparities in, in, in the amount of pollution. So a lot of these segregated areas are also where cities stuck their highest polluting uh, 
forces. There's higher rates of all sorts of underlying conditions. There's fewer access to, um, to healthcare. There's also um, the jobs, right, that have not been available. So there's a lot more black um, service workers, uh, people who have to work. And so what you saw in the early numbers, and more data to, uh, is coming, but 45% of deaths for COVID-19 have been black uh, Americans. 45% um, in Detroit, in Louisiana, um, some of the numbers are even higher. So that's a staggeringly uh, disparate impact of a colorblind disease. And I, but I think what it does reveal is that um, it is the is the myth of this colorblind effect. So so not only are is a disease colorblind, but also having a disparate impact. But our our credit programs are also colorblind, and they also have a disparate impact. So when you have any sort of benefit program, any sort of um, shared um, thing, you're, you're going to see uh, massive disparities. Um, you see in student loan debt. You see it in in home ownership today. You see it in savings. Um, Today, JP Morgan released um, some data that I'd help them accumulate on just um, spending. So earned income tax credit, when folks, low-income folks get an earned income tax credit for black families, um, they 200, um, 202, um, the, the spending on healthcare increases 220 times um, uh, than, than white families. So to translate that is that, um, that EITC goes to healthcare services at a much higher rate. So when that tax refund comes in, a lot of black families use it to, um, for healthcare costs, right? So what that means is that when you have lack of wealth, you also have lack of access um, to all sorts of other uh, uh, essential services. Um, you have much fewer liquid assets, you have less return on um, your income. So the other data on this is that black families actually only 70 percent of their income compared to white families can go into um, their their lives because the other stuff is kind of taken off through debt servicing. There's a whole bunch of complicated factors that come into this, but but all of this to say that the wealth gap sort of stagnates and self-perpetuates in these weird ways and, and understanding it gets us to where we need to be if we're going to look at solutions. And, and we can obviously talk more about that, but I'll kind of leave um, the maps for now. And I'll turn it back to you, John, for questions. Stop sharing. Okay. You're on mute. There we go. That's unmute. <laughs> okay. Can you hear me now? Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. So um, thanks for that, Marissa. I want to turn back to your personal background just for a second and yeah. talk about what you bring to the table. I, I, as you were talking, I recalled when my wife and I bought a home in Orange County and found out at closing that it had a covenant running with the land that this property shall never be sold to any non-white person. And you know, the title company gave me some forms to expunge that because it's illegal. And we decided, my wife and I decided, no, we're not gonna expunge it. We're gonna leave it on there yeah. Yeah. to let people know what, you know, where this land came from and you know, some indication of at least some progression we have made as a society and as a country. But, um, and it's a matter of personal dignity. Sorry, I mean, I, one of the things that, I, that that blew me away in, in studying some of the 
the, the the black bankers and successful black businessmen of an earlier era. I mean, Jesse Binga is someone that I write uh, write about in the book, and um, he was a black banker in Chicago. His house was bombed ten times, and he kept moving back. He bought a house in the nice neighborhood. He was a wealthy man, and um, and people were like, "Why don't you move? Like these people, you could die one of these days with these bombs." And he was like, "I'm an American citizen. I have the right." to be in this house. Um, another doctor, Ashen Sweet, um, bought a house and was armed, right? So used his second amendment rights to arm himself, to defend himself against intruders of his house. And when the mob came, um, he had every right to protect himself and he gets charged with a crime. Um, so, so there are these ways in which it's a, a matter of dignity for these black. And I, you know, I, I remember thinking, gosh, if I were in that position, I would just like move to another place, right? But, but, you know, I don't know what that's like. And so I, I, I do think that there is a sense of like, no, leave it in there because you, you have this sense of like just overcoming, like let them have that and I'm going to buy the house anyway. And, and, and so there, there are um, some really inspiring stories, but also tragic that that, that kind of hero, heroism has to be shown in, in such a, you know, hostile climate. Well, well, let me ask you, um, mm -hmm. you mentioned that you're not a descendant of enslaved peoples mm -hmm. here in America, but mm -hmm. you do, I am, obviously, maybe. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and um, I would love to hear your, yeah, family story. But, um, mm -hmm. but you bring some things to the table mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. very important. For example, your experience as a Wall Street attorney mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. your experience living in Harlem. Can you talk to us about that and how that informed and maybe motivated your work here? Yeah, so uh, uh, on the race issue, I kind of see myself as an outsider. You know, I did, my my ancestors weren't implicated on I, either side. Um, obviously, in other countries, there's the history of colonialization that are whole different chapters, but the black-white racial wealth gap is a very uniquely American uh, phenomenon. And, and also, I mean, South Africa, other places as well. But but the ways that Americans deal with race is just is weird for someone who's not from here, right? I mean, we have these myths that are so just sticky and so wrong. And I don't, I, you know, it, it is um, as an as an outsider. I mean, obviously, I'm uh, more American than not. But it it when I first kind of realized the way that Americans kind of map out race, it was really um, baffling. Um, as far as the Wall Street stuff, um, you know, uh, I was on I worked on Wall Street um, between. 2005 to about 2010, which if you remember, the, the history of the financial crisis um, was all in the before, mid, and after that time. And and I guess that's where I sort of, um, a lot of the sort of the cover of, of the, the, the stories of the financial sector and the credit economy and the Fed told about itself kind of blew open for me, right? This idea that banks were these private entities and they were, you know, you know, uh, 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 vulnerable to market forces and that, you know, governments didn't make money. They just kind of, you know, created it. And, and what, what you saw was just a complete reversal of everything that, that I thought I knew about the way that laws worked and that the way that finance worked. And, and what it was, was, you know, you have a, an industry that screwed up that, you know, that really took on too much risks, but it was an industry that we could not let fail. There wasn't, I know there's this back, the, the, the way we kind of rewrite this history, like, oh, we should have let them fail. That, that, that was not an option, just as it's not now, right? You, you have a sense in which we're all connected. And if you let AIG fail, if you let Goldman fail, we all lose our pensions, we all lose our jobs. Um, and so, so it was, and, and to see the Fed come up with 
you know, trillions of dollars overnight and to smooth over this market. Um, and, you know, after, uh, after my experiences with that, I, I sort of don't take these responses of, oh, well, where are you going to get the money for that? Or how are we going to fix it? Or, you know, this is just a matter of personal responsibility or just capitalism, right? Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, you saw that, you were seeing that right now with the COVID response, right? So you have the, the government being able to, when it wants to fix a problem, it can do it. It can do it fast. It can marshal trillions of dollars on behalf of uh, those who it wants to help. And so fixing the racial wealth gap is not um, beyond our means. Uh, it is, I think, beyond our political will um, and has been over time. And I try to tell that story um, through the book. Um, and part of it is just the way that we don't understand how it was created. And we want to blame the communities for this thing that was not created by the communities who are suffering from it. Well, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about your historical treatment was uh, talking about some of the conservative presidents in the modern era, Nixon, for example, and what was going on there. And the part I thought was fascinating was that uh, here was a conservative uh, president who, um, at least outwardly, embraced this idea of black capitalism, you know, mm -hmm. black empowerment. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk to us a little bit more about what actually happened and the effect on us today? I'd love to. I, mean, I could talk about Nixon for the next three hours. Um, I, I'll try not to, but um, spent months in the Nixon Library, which is here in Yorba Linda, California, and it's a fascinating treasure trove um, for anyone who is interested in history because there's all this Watergate stuff, but the campaign materials are these boxes of unmarked campaign materials that I think, for me, just like blew open my eyes on, on American um, politics. And here, here's why. So 1965, between 1968 are these pivotal years. And I obviously wasn't around, but I think understanding this era and the pivot points that were not followed and where we were as a country really helps explain where we are now with, with the two parties and with the, with the stories that we tell. So, so, you know, everything you know about Martin Luther King, the I Have a Dream speech, Selma March, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, all of that stuff was before 1965. Post-1965, Martin Luther King is very committed to this idea of economic justice, right? We have been given a bad check. It is time to fix it, right? So he's anti-war. He's anti-racism, you know, um, obviously. He's anti-economic exploitation, right? Um, he's saying things about capitalism that are really radical. He's really a radical guy. Um, you have the Black Power movement gaining traction, right? You have the Black Panthers moving in. And, and this idea of like, you know what, maybe integration is, is too much to hope for. We've been trying, after all, for hundreds of years. You know, this is Booker T. Washington, W. Du Bois. There's been lots. It's not as though the first time we're talking about civil rights is 1965. We've been talking about civil rights. I mean, there have been slave rebellions that were demanding right justice. I mean, every, as soon as the first Black people were enslaved, there was a demand for justice. So, so this was just the first time um, there was national attention to it, right? And then the Black power groups that were also another trend in the Black justice movement, which is, you know what, maybe we have our own um, uh, culture that we, we are going to protect and we, integration maybe not the, the, the goal that we're after, um, which I think Martin Luther King also has, uh, has 
you know, uh, bo both both parts of it. But what happens during this time is the Black Power movement is saying, you know, Black Power and Black companies and Black businesses. And so you have this 1968, so I'll skip over the Johnson era, even though it's fascinating. You have this 1968 election. The Democrat candidate is Robert Kennedy, who has a very robust um, civil rights agenda. Um, who knows if he could have gotten it um, done. He is killed. Um, Martin Luther King is killed in 1968. Um, you know, Malcolm X, Black Panthers, all sort of hunted down and killed uh, by various sources, probably the FBI. Um, and, uh, and then you have, so Hubert Humphrey comes in on the left. And then on the right, you have, you know, people like George Romney, who maybe I'll talk about later, who's a fascinating character, is the last the GOP, you know, conservative, but a racial justice kind of warrior, right? George Romney comes out looking at these maps, and he says, the white suburb is, is a noose around the Black ghetto. White, white society created the black ghetto and it's white society's job to fix it. That's George Romney, right? Um, so you have these candidates and, and Richard Nixon, what he does is, you know, creates this new Republican party by taking the South, the Southern Democrats and turning them into the right. And the way he does that is that there's these two very um, prominent paths out of the civil rights um, era. Right? Um, you have to fix it. Everyone understands that the economic part is next, right? The civil rights law, the voting rights law, all they do is guarantee the rights that should have been guaranteed in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments in 1865, right? So civil rights laws, voting rights law, and then the next step is economic justice. So do you push for integration? Do you push for reparations? Both of those are very um, robust positions that both sides are holding. And Richard Nixon um, can't do either. He wins the White House on a very anti-integrationist stance, a very anti-Black stance, right? This is all in the records. Um, it's all very public. This Every message was anti-Black. He was, he was um, sort of campaigning on the basest instincts of Americans. There was also a, a movement um, of, of riots in the inner cities, partly dealing with this um, economic issues. And I go into that a lot in the book. One of the things that the, the, the um, protests were targeting were the lenders in the black communities. So he knows that he can't do integration, uh, Richard Nixon, and he's not about to do reparations. Um, right. And Alan Greenspan is his advisor, and Alan Greenspan's writing all these memos to Richard Nixon at the time saying things. And Alan Greenspan, if, I know there's a lot of young folks out there um, who, you know, he's like the 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 you know the, he's been called the god of the free markets very you know um, pro-capitalist um and rand devotee and, and all of this stuff um he's saying look any any demands for reparation or integration is anti-capitalist so use sort of capitalism to cut cut down these these demands and so what richard nixon does is this brilliant move of taking the the rhetoric of the black power movement and twisting it right so no integration no reparations but yay black power so richard nixon's um, whole advertising agenda is black power and what he means is black capitalism so that's his economic agenda and what is black capitalism um, it's the omb the office of minority business enterprise which is now the minority business association so small business loans which gets cut down by the supreme court by the way as reverse discrimination right so he says okay well every government contract should give a little bit of you know contracts to black businesses and and that's you know doesn't even uh, uh, withstand the test of time um, and affirmative action so we ask companies to reserve some some places for black workers right this is so he can um, uh, 
pretend like he's doing something, but actually do very little. Um, Hubert Humphrey, who's his opponent at the time, says, you can't have black capitalism without capital, right? But that's exactly what he was trying to do, is do stories. So they would put out these stories of these successful black business people and say, look, look at this, right? Um, uh, you know, they're, they're, it works just as fine. And so they start these myths. And, and what you see from the Nixon era and that storytelling about the racial wealth gap and the need for economic justice to now is it are the things that I'm trying to overcome in the book. Um, because that's not just Nixon, it's Reagan, it's Clinton, um, it's, it's the Democrats, it's the, it's the Republicans, it's this focus on um, let the entrepreneurs fix it, right? It's opportunity zones, right? Opportunity zones is a Trump era thing, but that goes back to Nixon. I mean, Nixon had black capitalism, Reagan has enterprise zones, Clinton has enterprise zones. Um, he calls them community enterprise zones or whatever. Um, right. so, so these are all a very Nixonian ideas that don't actually get to the core of um, the racial wealth gap. Thank you, Marissa. Yes. I think um, let's turn now to solutions or potential mm -hmm. solutions from where we are now. And I was interested to read in your book um, on page 282. <laughs> the, the point of this book has not been to propose a particular proposal, but rather to demonstrate that past efforts of economic inclusion have fallen short and that any plan to bridge the wealth gap must include integration or a means to acquire capital. And then you go on to talk about certain litmus tests that should be applied to whatever solutions are being considered. I have a number of questions on this one, but maybe we'll start with um, what did you mean by uh, it must include either integration or a means mm -hmm. of acquiring capital? Why is that important? Yeah, so, so going back to the 1960, and I don't mean integration in that you have to have um, housing integration. I mean economic integration, right? You can't have taxes being used to fund school districts from the home values, right? You have to give people um, this ability to have uh, the economic mobility, right? So today, where a child, the zip code that you're born in has everything to do with your future potential, uh, your school, your potential income, all of that. And so that's, that's where integration comes in. You have to allow families to move to where they want to move. I mean, I, I know we say that we don't, we don't prohibit that, right? There aren't racial covenants anymore, but effectively there are. There are zoning laws. There are the ways that we fund schools, the way that we fund neighborhoods and housing. Um, so we have to have some sort of um, economic integration. You have to embed um, all of that, that schooling into a, a, a wider system that allows those resources to be shared. Um, or you have to have reparations, and that's what I mean by capital. Um, so call it, I mean, I, don't, I think we get mixed up in these words, but um, the, 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 the basic thesis that I sort of lay out in the book is that you have had a, a variety of government credit programs and government just land allocation and, and, and the markets have responded, right? Markets are the same thing as the government. I think the government sets up the market, but you've had um, subsidies and credit allocation that have built white wealth and that have explicitly not built black, black wealth, right? Been excluded from Homestead Acts, FHA loans, GI Bill, all of that stuff that still um, has effects to today, right? Um, so you have to fix that. You can't just pretend uh, you can't just say, okay, from now on, we're not colorblind, right? We're, 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 we are colorblind. From now on, we're just no racial discrimination. And of course, we still have racial discrimination, but as long as it's not explicit, 
you have to fix it. So how do you fix it? You have to get to the core of how it was built. It was built through housing. It was built through employment discrimination. It was built through these, these credit things that were not available. And so go to that core and fix it, right? So whether um, it's through um, housing uh, uh, allocations, I mean, there's, there's actually a variety of solutions here. I mean, look at the CARES Act, right? You have all these problems, right? People are out of jobs, they're, they need to service their debt. And so the CARES Act is this whole package of like, okay, we're going to fix employment. And, and it's not perfect, but it, it kind of looked at the, the various different parts of the economy that are stalled. Um, and, and one of the things that Martin Luther King says is like, look, we care a lot when there's a depression and a, uh, and a recession, but the black community has been in a depression since 1865, right? If you look at the numbers, we just wouldn't tolerate that level of depression for the American population if the wealth and the income and the employment odds were that bad for all of us. And, and part of it is that we just don't take that ownership. We don't see it as all, uh, all Americans this way. We're kind of okay with some kids going to under-resourced schools, but my kids should go to a better school. You know, and I think we do this, we, we make these personal decisions um, that maybe are individually rational, but collectively, um, you know, cre recreate these injustices on a family by family basis. Well, that, that's really important. Let's go to, um, let's go a little bit deeper there. And um, I want to give you a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. And I've been waiting all my life to give a law school professor a hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, I apologize in advance. Yeah, it's okay. okay. <laughs> Justice. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Fast forward to January 2021, mm -hmm. a third presidential candidate has entered the race mm -hmm. and she wins by a landslide. And Marissa is now the president of the United States. It's your first day in office in the White House. Yeah. And uh, one of your, your platform, of course, a major part of your platform was fixing or narrowing uh, the racial wealth gap. Mm -hmm. First day in office, what do you do? Yeah. Okay. So uh, one, I don't like people enough to run for president. And two, I'm just kidding. Um, two, I was born in Iran. So these are all very, very hypothetical questions. Um, <laughs> so uh, the first day in office, I mean, so w w what I think is really important here is that every agency in the federal government, every, every um, branch of government, legislature, executive, judicial department, every agency, so FHA, HUD, EPA, all of that, every single agency and every branch of government had a role in perpetuating the racial wealth gap, okay? Um, and the role was either omission or actual um, racially explicit laws for hundreds of years, right? So if you're looking at any of the housing structure, and the housing structure is, we don't have a really private mortgage um, market here. We have a very uh, public uh, mortgage mechanism, right? The GSEs, the, all of the, the banking agencies, um, the Federal Reserve, all of that stuff. So I would say every agency, um, here's your history. Here's how you helped create that racial wealth gap. Give me a plan. You, you agency head, and obviously I would appoint great agency heads, right? Um, you agency heads, so I'm good at delegation. So, you know, <laughs> you agency heads come up with a plan for, and you're going to check in every year um, on how, what your efforts have been in closing the wealth gap. I want to see data. I want to see what exactly you, you've been doing. And this is the beauty of the Nixon administration. So Nixon did something brilliant here with the, uh, the Office of uh, Budget, the 
I can't remember, probably sound was, uh, it's called the Congressional Budget Office. And right. um, one of the mandates of the Congressional Budget Office that had come over time is the cost-benefit analysis that, that we law professors love to debate. And, and it's, um, the idea is any regulation or legislation that you come up with as an agency, as a Congress or whatever, has to be scored on a cost-benefit. So what are the costs to the economy? What are the benefits, right? So it's basically like Nixon understanding is what you measure is what you get. Right. If you're going to measure costs, that's what you're going to get. If we were to measure just environmental impact, we would get that. Right. If we were to measure the racial wealth gap, that's what we would get. So I would say start measuring it. Every agency, every plan. Tell me how this closes or perpetuates the racial wealth gap. Come to me every year and report. We do this all the time with the stuff that we care about. So I would do that for here for this, and then I would just dedicate the capital um, program. So I've I've come up with a couple policy proposals. One would be the the uh, Homestead Act. So to re revitalize these cities, um, Detroit, Baltimore, um, certain rural places that were um, you know redlined or deprived of mortgages that are largely uh, black populations, black and brown, by the way, Hispanic. Hispanics have also, um, uh, there's a, a, a racial wealth gap there. But um, to, to create um, bonds, right, the way that we did for the FHA, um, to underwrite these, the revitalization of these cities. So you buy up a bunch of these abandoned homes, you re redevelop through government bonds, you, you sell them, um, you give them, sorry, as a grant, like a homestead grant um, to uh, the recipients, and then allow that revitalization to build wealth. That's how we created the suburb. And I think looking back at it, that was probably a mistake, right? The suburbanization of America made us a car country. It made us uh, a home living. It made us, it had environmental impacts that were bad. It had community impacts that were maybe not so great. Um, but we did it within a matter of like five, 10 years. Um, out of nothing, we created an entire new structure of the economy, and it was profitable. All of those mortgages made money. The FHA um, made money. Um, the cap, the private capital came, and so these programs don't have to be, you know, this like uh, backwards-looking. I mean, look forward, look look green, but but do it in a way that um, involves. So so I guess my short answer would be um, to start measuring it and start like. Um, telling people exactly, um, asking people to report exactly what it is that they've done and what they do. So whether that's um, private companies or public uh, agencies, I would want to see reports. Correct. And I would, I mean, the other, sorry, the other thing is just like the rhetoric. I mean, I think any time you have a presidential, uh, a president speaking, um, that rhetoric is coming up. And this is what you saw with the Trump era. And I know one of your, one of the audience questions just, you know, um, one of the, I hate to say silver lining of the Trump era, because I think it, I, you know, it's been an unmitigated disaster, um, is that race has, we, we are not pretending that we're in this colorblind society anymore. We, it is front and center. Um, you, you saw the campaigning, and, and Nixon was even way smoother than, than this, this president in the way that, that he talked about race. I mean, Nixon's entire platform was anti-black, as his top advisor reveals. Um, yet he was able to code it in a way, in a different way than, than Trump just can, can kind of come out and say these things. And so I think that's actually, um, for those of us who have been shy about you know, trying to gain economic justice, we can say, look, we're clearly not colorblind. Let's just deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. And we have these these terrible things and let's just put them front and center and, and, and talk about it. And, and I think that would be actually, quite healing for everyone. Uh, maybe that's too optimistic, but um, kind of getting that just 
out and, and measuring it and, and really coming to terms with what it has meant uh, for our society. Well, while, while we're there, Madam President. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's my nightmare. <laughs> I'm just, just enjoying this hypothetical a few more minutes. <laughs> but actually, since my boss is here, I literally have my dream job right now. So <laughs> okay. No ambition for anything else. <laughs> and we are glad to have you here. Thank you. Well, let's switch gears then uh, and talk about in terms of 2021 through 2025, the next presidential administration, can you briefly um, compare kind of a contrast what you think would be likely in terms of addressing the, uh, the racial wealth gap, comparing a Trump administration versus a Biden administration? You know, um, I, it depends on who Biden gets as, as advisors. I think the, there has been a progressive movement on the left, um, progressive in, in general, understanding that um, uh, class and race are issues um, that have always gone together. Um, I think one of the things that um, that that Trump, um, I think, gave populists a kind of bad name. I mean, and I want to go back um, historically, um, the early populist party was a Southern party of sharecroppers, white and black. Um, Frederick Douglass was a you know, proud affiliate of this, um, of the populist party. And the idea was, look, we're all sharecroppers and we are, we're growing this debt crop and it's just feeding you know, Wall Street and the oligarchs and the planters. And so we're gonna join together and get the things that we want. And the things they wanted were access to credit and you know, more um, sort of looser monetary policy so they could you know, buy um, land for themselves and buy um, equipment. And so that was the early populist party. And what um, the Democrat party at the time did is decide that white supremacy could actually break this up. So we're gonna give the, the poor white sharecroppers something in whiteness and and that is actually a better coalition because then we'll join up with some of the planters and beat the populists um so i so i think there is a potential for um a populism that is the martin luther king frederick Douglass era populist so martin luther king the last thing he was doing um you know was a poor people's march on um capitol hill and the idea was to bring you know white appalachian white appalachian this is a tidbit from history that i think is incredibly relevant white appalachian um uh, unions who were also armed joined up with the Black Panthers um, or, and on several occasions to do um, certain you know demonstrations and they were really affiliated here so so this this idea that you would have poor white people and poor black people and poor um, you know Mexican migrants join together um, to fight you know like JP Morgan um, isn't too far-fetched um, and I think that that is the politics that we have to keep our eyes on is this who who are the power players? I mean, look at look at this the CARES Act, right? I mean, who got the money? It wasn't the small businesses, it was a lot of the big businesses, it was the big banks that chose who to give the money to, right? It's it's JP Morgan, it's Amazon that don't pay the taxes. Do you really care about, you know, like illegal immigrants, you know, coming in and taking healthcare services? Or do you want Jeff Bezos to pay some federal taxes that would take care of a million different problems. So I think if we're going to see a true left, any left solutions, and and you know Trump um, did. I mean he was he was not genuine, but he did summon that populism. I think it was. I mean if you knew who he was and if you knew the people he was going to appoint, it was always false. Um, but there is that 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 um, line, you know, in the in the left in some of the candidates. Now Biden is is not uh, that candidate at this point. 
Um, so it will depend on who he brings in. But the idea would be just to just to unrig the system, to get money out of politics, to uh, diminish the power of lobbies, to force you know the billionaires to pay taxes. I mean, we just don't need people to have hundreds of billions of dollars. That's a that's a that's a threat to democracy. Um, it just doesn't work. A society doesn't work when when one percent of the country owns eighty percent of the wealth. That's just that's that's not democracy. I mean, going to Brandeis, right? You can either have uh, democracy or wealth in, in a few hands. You can't have both. And I think we've chosen wealth in a few hands. And I think right. that's the challenge. Marissa, before we turn to the audience questions, uh, last topic, mm -hmm. what can members of the audience do to help in this mission, both individually and collectively? Um, I think you make uh, individual decisions. Um, well, collectively, I think just getting politics, right? Um, you know, uh, trying to join coalitions that are broad and are demanding actual fundamental economic justice for our most vulnerable um, population. So the black population, we need a coalition that recognizes these histories. And if it doesn't, then that's not the coalition that we should join, right? Any party, uh, left or right, that doesn't um, precedent um, black economic justice is not taking um, justice seriously or, or um, democracy seriously. And the other thing, personal decisions is just the, you know, the rhetoric that we use, the places we decide to uh, buy homes. Um, a lot of us choose uh, those who are middle class, um, choose what, the, the, the single most important choice is where, where do we buy homes? Where do we send our kids to school? And often um, those decisions end up, I mean, it's not, I don't wanna blame individual decisions because there is a system, but, but we really can speak up. Um, in local politics, we can talk about local zoning, we can talk about local taxes and local school funding um, and, and all of that sort of local uh, politics that, that does breed injustice. Great, thank you. Um, I wanna be respectful of people's time, but my understanding is we have until 6.15. Is that your understanding too, Marissa? Mm -hmm. I guess, yeah, if people can stay. I, I can stay, but if people need to go, I can keep talking. <laughs> Well, so it's a lot easier. You just disappear, I think. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <laughs> why don't we plan to go at least uh, to go another 15 minutes or so because mm -hmm. we have okay. some really good questions. Okay. Um, and I know you want to turn your attention to those and maybe take a minute or two to wrap up at the end. Um, sure. So to finish off on COVID-19 and where we are now, here's a good question. Um, What should policymakers be doing to support Black communities and enhance access to credit during the COVID-19 recovery? Yeah, so um, uh, one of the things that I, um, I've been kind of, I feel like a broken record at this point, um, is, is this idea that all the credit allocation goes through banks, and banks become this middleman that ends up creating these really disparate outcomes. So you, the money comes from Treasury or the Fed, and then it gets distorted and it comes out skewed from the banks, right? So the PPP was a classic example, right? All the $350 billion banks, you send it out to, to the small businesses. And what happens is what was bound to happen when you use these big banks, right? The big banks said the first day that they're not gonna do it. 
except for their credit customers. Who are their credit customers? The bigger businesses. Um, they did it for um, their largest businesses and the ones that had the lawyers that were able to, to come in um, with those applications and, and, and had those longstanding relationships. So we saw, you know, only 4% of small businesses got got the loans, a lot of big businesses came. Um, you see this in a lot of the, the way that the credit dispersal grows. So my broken record thing is you can actually um, do it directly. We have the technology. Um, we don't need these antiquated systems. It used to be that only, only banks could clear checks. You had to have uh, someone go to a clearinghouse and, and take the check and make sure it wasn't fraudulent and, and clear the check. And now you, my, my cell phone can clear a check in like mm -hmm. a second. Okay, so you know one of the things, you know, is postal banking, you can go the, there's a ton of rural areas, urban areas where banks refuse to, to lend. They refuse to be give um, uh, savings accounts. Uh, the post office could do it um, in, in tons of areas where the post office is the one federal government contact that people have or the one outpost in the entire area. Um, so go, you can get, you know, savings account there, checking account, and then the treasury could just push a button and the money would be there. Um, you have people's social security number. The post office has your address. They know who they are. It's, it's a, 300-year-old more pre-constitutional agency that has been serving every community regardless of cost since the founding of our country and um, this is this is a, a we had a postal savings bank um, so, so I think that that's one of the ways that we can increase access to credit for individuals as far as just targeting black communities I mean I think we have to just do that target um, and also I want to point out that credit isn't all good right it's not just any ratcheting up in credit is not going to be beneficial unless it's the right kind of credit, right? So, so subprime was access to credit. Um, it was wealth extracting credit. Payday lending is access to credit. That's how the payday lending sector justifies itself is that they're offering access to credit. So it has to be wealth building credit. So certain student loans can build wealth. Um, certain home mortgage loans that are guaranteed um, can build wealth. You can just give capital directly. You can give down payment assistance. Um, so I've helped a couple of the the senators and, and presidential candidates come up with um, some of these plans and, and was proud to, to see some of this stuff um, get enacted and all of it, the stuff that I put together had both credit that is low cost and underwritten by the federal agencies, but also uh, down payment assistance. Um, because when, when you have this massive racial wealth gap, you have a third to half of black families that have zero to negative wealth. Okay, so you don't have the down payment. Um, so you need that also. So that's part of the, the plan that I had put together. Thank you. So this next question is one where I'm stringing together a couple of questions from the audience, but also some things that I've heard in the media and, and knocks I've heard on, um, uh, on, the, on the strategy uh, in other contexts. So the question is, isn't reparations an antiquated concept that's already been tried and has failed? What do you say to that? I don't know when it's been tried. Um, it, it certainly hasn't been tried ever here in America with black population. There was Japanese uh, reparations, which worked. There was um, German uh, Jewish reparations. Um, and uh, there has never been, there was one uh, reparations case with the Ag Department um, on black farmers that didn't get it and it never, um, came to fruition. So we haven't actually tried reparations. Um, I think reparations is an old sounding word, but let me put it in a different way. I teach contracts to one else. And when you breach a contract, uh, there are three types of damages. You can do restitution, compensatory damages, reliance damages, right? Any lawyers in the room understand how this goes. If you breach, if you have, if you promise someone, I'm going to give you $100 for whatever, and then you breach, you don't do it. You have to make them whole, okay? So whether that means giving them the money that you were owing them or making them 
put them in the position that they would have been in um, before you took something from them or once you could you you fulfilled the contract um, where the position they would have been in because there's a lot of different theories all of them include damages you can't just walk away from a contract and be like okay i'm done right you you go figure it out right um so we've had a social contract uh, we've had a very actual contract with black americans right 13th 14th 15th amendment promised equal protection um that we promised all sorts of um, equality and it was deprived through Jim Crow, it was deprived through um, segregation, it was deprived through all these racially explicit um, zoning, policing, uh, you know, the mass incarceration, um, you know, the, the drug sentencing disparities, I mean, it's all the ways that we've reached it. Um, so you have to pay damages. And who pays damages? Well, the people who were enriched, if we're talking about a whole general society, we can kind of measure it in the racial wealth gap, right? That's a measure of enrichment. So one way to measure damages is just close the racial wealth gap, right? And that's, that's, that, then we achieve justice and then we're, we're good after that, right? So we don't need to do anything racially explicit afterwards, right? Just close the racial wealth gap. You can measure up the damages. That's hard, right? Measure up the damages and pay out. That's a harder thing to do. Um, but reparations can take a bunch of different forms. But I think crucial to all the reparations programs has to be a, a truth and reconciliation, a, a hard talk. Uh, and this could take the form of a congressional, several congressional panels, Senate panels, where people come in with measurements, with data, with history, and explain what happened, right? The measurements of what happened, what happened there and how we, it came to here. And just kind of lay it out in in very um, bland sort of you know data ways, and then just and understand right and and issue yeah like apologies um, things like that um, and that's you know South Africa um, underwent that sort of truth and reconciliation process and I think one of the problems uh, with the American uh, race system is that we justified these cruel and horrendous practices of slavery convict leasing Jim Crow lynching. Um, and we use these myths about racial inferiority to justify them. And then we stopped the practice and we didn't address the myths. But we had all these elaborate justifications for, oh, God created the white man to be above the black man. And there's you know, these pseudoscientific things. And, and these were legitimate theories upheld, to uphold these institutions. And then we're just like, okay, well, we're done with slavery now. But we're not going to address that we made up these racial theories, because we needed one race to be labor, free labor. We wanted free labor, and we figured out a way to do it, and then we justified these theories. Obviously, it wasn't one person, but this is what happened. So now we're going to stop that because we've, you know, whatever, for whatever reasons, and we're not going to talk about all of the stories we made up to justify that. And that, that, that lingers, and that, I think, has stayed with us, and I think that's why to get over it, we need to kind of discuss those things as well. Okay. Uh, well, relatedly, here's a question. For capital providers, for example, foundations that have vocalized commitments to racial equity, what would you suggest as the most important partners to support equitable access to capital or banking? Um, I tend to, I tend to, uh, I, I, I think public institutions need to bear responsibility. I appreciate that 
um, private entities. I, I just, I, 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 I'll answer the question. I want to make sure this is not a job for nonprofits to do. Um, this is, this is a, a very um, integral to our democracy. Um, but I think that the, the places the institutions are, um, you know, there, there are um, equitable uh, uh, places right now. Um, you're looking at, you know, the, the way that the post office functions, actually. Um, there, are, there are agencies like, like that that actually give all people um, access uh, to to funds. Um, there's there's some agencies that you know looking at the, the the success of the EITC, any institution or agency that actually just provides people money in times of need is is going to be helpful. Um, small scale, large scale, I think really pushing for um, political power is really important. Um, uh, and and political uh, coalition building, any agency or institution that is building the widest coalition possible of people um, through a shared platform, I think is really, really important. Um, and not just, I'm just gonna slice off each sector. Um, any institution that's gonna lobby for people, right, have broad-based uh, donors, that's one of the things that is super um, disproportionate is the lobbying power. So when I was working, uh, and, and I, this is probably worse now, but there were six financial industry lobbyists for every one legislator. So take up Congress and, and, and the Senate, multiply by six, that's the amount of lobbyists they see. And these things are complicated. So when you're putting together Dodd-Frank, my firm, my law firm represented the banks, we wrote Dodd-Frank. Davis Polk, my former law firm, wrote the first and second drafts of Dodd-Frank. It's, it's public knowledge now. Um, but but you know, we, we, we had our clients and we weren't at, at the time putting in the things that the banks wanted, but I mean, were we, you know, um, and it's hard, it's hard to write finance, it's hard to write a derivatives bill. Um, and so you need uh, lobbies for people to say, okay, we as a people have no investment in the derivatives market, but we think this is bad for all of us. We think oil, you know, ex exploration off our shores is bad in the long run. And we know that the, the, the oil lobby is very targeting, very targeted. On, in their lobbying efforts, and the people at large tend to not have a lobbying arm. Uh, so those are places that I would love to see some some counter, uh, like you know, it, given that the world that we live in, I mean, the best world would be the lobbyists don't get the front seat at the table. But in the world that we live in, we need some lobbyists who represent broader human issues. Thank you. Very helpful, Marissa. So I think um, we probably have time for one more question and. There are lots of good, great questions here, and I think you've covered a lot, though, Marissa, in your comments uh, that people can take away from this. Uh, but again, very impressive comments for a very impressive uh, speaker and author. The last one is more of a personal question, and that is, how did your work as a transactional attorney influence your ability to work on wealth inequality in ways that a career in litigation may not have? Oh, yeah. You know, um, so this is where I'm going to get on my soapbox. So I do it with my students. I've been teaching for 10 years. And with every contract class, every banking property class, I say, look, a lot of people come to law school. Uh, and I am one of them. I went to law school thinking I wanted to do you know, immigration law or something social justice oriented, right? Because I, you know, my background was very much, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, poor and knowing what that's like. And, and, the, and I wanted to help communities. Um, and for a variety of reasons, mostly because I needed money, um, I ended up going to a firm and litigation was just, I just hated it, you know, so I ended up in the transactional world and realized, oh my gosh, there's so much 
work to be done here. Because what happens is the people interested in, you know, certain type of politics and a certain type of markets end up in transactional. And then the social justice folks, you know, who are, you know, wanting to make the world better end up in the, the litigation, the criminal law and the, you know, family law, which is great. We definitely need expert lawyers, but we need social justice minded people at the Federal Reserve. And we need socially justice-minded people at the FDIC and the SEC and the CFTC and, and all of those places that actually end up creating very consequential laws. And in order to know that stuff, you have to get into the weeds of the stuff that is very, uh, you know, it's just money. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all very, it, it's, it's a world of, you know, rich white men. That's, that's the way I perceived it. And when I was in those rooms as a transactional lawyer, um, it, I never felt comfortable, um, but like, thank goodness, right? Like I never got, you know, into the boys club and, you know, so someone, uh, Elizabeth Warren and, and Sheila Bear, who are the female regulators at the time said something like, during the financial crisis, the only people pushing up against the narrative of the banks were women. And one of the, you know, this, this reporter is like, why? And they're like, well, we were never invited to the boys club. Like we just were outside anyway. So it gave them a different lens on it. Everyone's doing this trading and all this stuff, maybe, if you're on the outside, you see things differently. And so I, I would urge a, a lot of you know, potential students to go and do, do bankruptcy law, do transactional law, do tax. Um, there's a lot of, of good work that can be done here. So that's kind of where my priors are. I kind of fumbled into it. Um, I didn't make a plan for anything. I still don't. Um, but I got really interested because I realized, oh, this, this is really consequential for, for poor people. Right, the stuff that's happening at the Fed and the way that the bailout functions actually ends up heightening or closing inequality, and that matters on the ground. Um, so that's my background. Well, thank you, Marissa. Listen, I thank you for your thoughtful book, your excellent scholarship, and your amazing first force of personality and background and commitment that you brought to this effort. And I know that. Uh, there would be a standing ovation right now if we were up again in the same auditorium. But again, just thank you for all that you are, all that you're doing, and for sharing all this time with us and, and your thoughts on these very, thank very you. important things. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's just a pleasure and song. Thank you for allowing this and thank you all for, for coming in. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's late, um, especially on the East Coast. Um, and, and this is not, you know, uh, it's not Netflix. So thank you. For, <laughs> I know there's some good TV out there. So I appreciate um, the time that, that you all put in. So thank you. And I just want to thank, I, I, I can't leave without thanking uh, both of you, John Gibson and Mersa Baradarin. This was just an extremely powerful and illuminating discussion. And I'm so proud to know you both and to thank you both for spending all of this time uh, with us tonight. And for everyone who stayed to the, to the bitter end with us here today, thank you too. And uh, very much look forward to, to the next event. So thank you both. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.